Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrew, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Nick Hare of Aleph Insights and our special guest, Susie Ballantyne. And this week, we're discussing what is Trump? Nick, so lead us in. Um, we want to talk about Trump. We want to talk about what, who, how is Trump. Um, but also, obviously, with us, we've got, we're very excited. We've got a special guest with us. We've got Susie Ballantyne, who we've had on the podcast before as well. Um, yeah, intro the topic and tell us a bit more about Susie. Yeah, so obviously now we're in a position where Trump has now, for now, He's gone. He's out of the picture um, mm. following a extremely intriguing sort of series of calamitous events at the end of his uh, tenure as president. Um, and I think now might be an interesting time. Tempers have cooled a bit to do a bit of a retrospective into the person, uh, Donald Trump, um, in what I'd like to be quite a sort of non-judgmental way, really. I think there's mm. no doubt that judging by the spilled ink, you know, he's an interesting phenomenon. Um, I don't, so I'm not really interested in what effects he's had, whether he's been good or bad, whether he's any effective, effective as a leader. I think it's, I think I'm interested in the person and what we can learn from, you know, his rise and fall, um, and into what, in what ways we should accommodate Trump. Uh, you know, is he, a, is he, is he a person or is he just a thing? Is he accidentally like that or is it calculated is he playing a part or you know is he so if he is playing a part is he so good at it that it's no longer a part but the the reality you know there are all these interesting questions a fascinating guy and i thought well who better to get on to discuss these things than uh susie ballantyne who is a friend both of mine and of the podcast um and uh listeners will remember susie from the podcast a year or so ago to talk when she was here to talk about her work into psychological um, psychological resilience um and although uh, she's a social psychologist, I think, um, you know, has in the past has studied leadership for for government. And I think um, it will be really interesting finding out what she uh, thinks about Donald Trump and uh, how, how you would characterize him. <laughs> Great. Um, thanks for that introduction. Hi, Susie. And so, um, yeah, anything else that we sort of, you know, to fill us in about who you are? So essentially, you're a psychologist and and, and fill, it, fill, it, fill out the gaps a bit for us, would you? So, yeah, thank you. Well, thanks very much for having me back on. It's lovely to be back here. Um, so I'm a social psychologist. I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I'm not uh, I'm not here to um, explore theories of his psychological disorders dysfunctions or anything else um but I, I agree with you nick i think he's it's fascinating in terms of a leader who has um well in many ways controversially been very successful going from you know salesman to president of the united states is quite an achievement and i think not bad. Like, <laughs> yeah why not look at that journey and look at how he's done it you might not like it and i think it's you, know, you might love it. You have to park your own particular emotional response to Trump to one side to have a look at how he's actually done it. And I think when you start to tease it apart, it is really interesting. And I think he is going to provide vast amounts of material for uh, researchers and students and commentators alike for, for many, many years as to what exactly he did and how he did it. Um, so yeah, I'm a social psychologist. I do uh, I, I I work independently as a as a coach and a researcher, and I'm a doctoral student at Sussex University, um, where I do uh, my research on social identity and change, primarily with refugees and asylum seekers. So that, that's my actual specialism. I don't spend my day job studying Trump, um, 
But I think who hasn't spent many evenings in a pub or over a cup of tea um, looking at the latest headlines and wondering what on earth is Trump all about? Great. Um, well, so I, I'm not quite sure how to start this, how to frame the discussion, because I once worked with someone who I believe was a, a narcissist. OK, I can start us off talking like that. Or do you, or do you just want to wait? How do we how do we frame this discussion? Nick or Susie, where, how do you want to start this? Where do we want to go? Well, I thought maybe just start giving Susie the chat. How would she begin to characterise? What framework would we use mm. to characterise Trump? How, how, what's a good way of sort of describing someone's personality? Mm. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. I think the word narcissist coming up so quickly in the conversation, and that's definitely the label that everyone springs to, isn't it? Um, because it's, people are trying to make sense of this person who has these very distinct and exaggerated characteristics, personality characteristics. So we tend to dive straight into the personality. You know, we want to sort of peel away the, the layers of Donald Trump and get to the man on the inside. And and you know, looking and, and that's where most psychologists would go and, and you know many psychoanalysts have been interviewed about Donald Trump. Um, but I think it's interesting to look at it not just about personality to, but to look at the other things that shape him. And you know look okay. at the sort of narrative of his life a bit. Um, things that he has tried to create and construct and how he's done that and how that's led to a particular following. Um, so there are just different lenses you can use to look at him. You can try and understand his personality and try and work out if there's sort of dysfunctional aspects there. But I think actually it's more interesting and you could argue more useful for society to understand how does this leader work and how, why, what's his appeal and why do people follow him? So let's do that. First of all, you talked about the narrative and I don't know if we're talking about a constructed narrative from on, from Trump on his part, or or just laying out the facts of his life, mm. and then perhaps go on to what you said, um, which was yeah, about about the sort of social effects. Yeah, you know, about the, the why why do people follow him? As I say, there's a sort of a key part, and, and as I say, I'm not a Trump expert, but if I if I was you know to to give some commentary on him, what's fascinating is that he is all about brand and marketing and communication, and so his main motivation is maintaining a construction of what he wants people to believe him to be and has been doing that for so long and so successfully that I don't doubt for a moment that he also believes it and so part of the sort of cumulative effect of that is he has to maintain and persuade and manipulate and distort the world around him so that it aligns with his story so far his you know this very sort of interesting story full of half-truths and mistruths about where he's come from, where his family's come from, what his successes are. But that's the story that has shaped him. And as a result, his future decisions seem to be determined by maintaining that particular narrative, that particular line. And it's really powerful. And you, I think one could argue he's been quite successful at it. It's not been pleasant to watch. And I think the ramifications of it have not necessarily been good uh, globally in terms of sort of global politics. But he's been quite the what sort of leadership theorists would call the entrepreneur of identity. He's got an identity and he sells it well. Uh, yeah, it's, but it's interesting. Um, I mean, you're, just to throw in a kind of interesting data point is that PolitiFact have looked at all of Trump's, the Trump scorecard, which is all of the things that he said, and 3% of them come out as true. 9% are mostly true. 12% are half true and the rest are mostly false, false or pants on fire. Um, <laughs> so about one in six of the things he said is totally made up. Mm. Um, how, Susie, why is this, how, 
how is this a successful strategy? Do you know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> you, you're characterizing, he's not really concerned with the truth of what he's saying. He's no. saying things because they have a certain effect. Mm. Why does that work? Well, I think you've got to think about the yardstick you're using to measure success. And the yardstick I'm referring to is his own personal success, which is primarily his main motivation. It's about maintaining his own story um, so it rings true for him and his immediate followers. Not necessarily that he is successful as a leader or what one would expect from a president. Mm -hmm. And so on that basis, um, first of all, he has a very complex and quite a strategic sense of what truth is. He uses it to serve his own purposes. And he's not somebody who is sort of highly uh, concerned or worried about being shamed or about the ramifications or the consequences of that sort of deceit. Many of us would be. He isn't particularly. It's not something that probably keeps him awake at night. What would keep him awake at night is the idea that somehow people aren't buying into who he is or what he's doing or that he may lose that sense of sort of self um, and value that is so important to him. But Susie, you started talking about this um, and in part of the narrative, and I'm intrigued as to how you get to that point where that sort of worldview and that self-perception and and preserving, I think, that self-perception, how is it that you get to that point? Mm. Um, and again, maybe thinking about, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but if, it's, if you think it's interesting, but what events you know, would have shaped that sort of, mm. I think that's what I find fascinating. Can I, can How I do you end up on, like that? Can I build on the question um, yeah. a bit, which is, it just seems from an evolutionary perspective to be very maladaptive to um, inwardly believe things that are false. <laughs> I mean, it feels like that should not be successful. Um, you know, if, if it would be better to believe, you know, to have a, to have a realistic assessment of your own ability mm. and your own strength mm. so that you could then, um, you know, play to them. Mm. But, but you know, the, the, certainly from outward appearances, Trump is, sort of has this belief that he's more or less fantastic at everything. Um, uh, now, it seems, on one hand, you could say, well, look, it worked. He's the president of, he was the president of the US. How much more do you want? But obviously for every Trump, there's a million, you know, secondhand car salesmen yeah. who have the same personality. It's <laughs> a very, where is it? yeah that, that's that's the puzzle it's not even like you know we have to explain a certain kind of extreme personality disorder or or personality tendency it's, it's that it actually seems to be count it ought to be counterproductive yeah well I, I think because it works in two ways first of all um from an evolutionary perspective it would make sense to capitalize on your strengths and stick to the facts about who you really are unless you are so deeply insecure about who you are and feel that you live in a world which is constantly threatening to undermine it or take it away um then your interest is in winning and you know trump's worldview is very much one of competition you either win or you lose you succeed or you fail and the most important thing is that you win he wins and anyone who is not him or directly related to him or interested in him presents a threat. So the motivations behind it are built on his worldview, a model of thinking about the world, which is very much a sort of warlike battle. I mean, his whole narrative strand is about being in a, you know, growing up in New York where it was sort of dog eat dog. And if you weren't at the top of that hierarchy, you were going to get eaten alive. And that sort of driven and shaped him. Um, some theorists argue that, you know, he has a, a fundamental craving for attention to the point where it doesn't matter if he's lying or is caught out by his lies he just wants to monopolize your psychological thinking you know part of it is about being 
in people's minds, colonizing people's minds is the term that a psychologist Stephen Gross used to to be in and in, in on everyone's radar and not being on people's radar is deeply wounding and deeply demotivating. And, you know, so for him, where does that come from? Well, you know, psychoanalysts would argue that there's some childhood experiences which would suggest that, um, you know, you weren't given the attention you craved as a child and therefore you spend your life trying to compensate for it. Um, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I couldn't judge whether that's the case for Trump. But actually, if you look at his background, his family seemed to be, you know, his parental relationships seemed to be, from what I've seen, fairly normal. Uh, but he had a very strong role model in his father who was similarly this, you know, you know, landlord going around, you know, knocking on doors to collect the rent, dealing with a lot of the stresses and strains and competition of, of that sort of life in the, in, I guess, what would have been sort of 50s and 60s. So, you know, he, his whole social influence is one of, you've got to survive. So his evolutionary model isn't, I'm going to play on my strengths, it's I'm going to survive regardless of the odds, and I am never going to lose. Yeah, it's interesting, um, thinking about it in those terms, sort of thinking about it in a quite sort of primal setting or as a as a kind of fundamental, um, you know, fairly fundamental kind of drive to to survive in a world of threats, mm. um, to see yourself as, you know, as as quite, I guess you'd say quite low down on the on the hierarchy of needs that your your, your immediate well-being is being threatened and that that conditions your worldview. Mm. Um, and one of the things that I think you know, it seems to me we probably underestimate in the same way we don't underestimate how how important heat is. We don't because we're so used to being able to have heat. We don't think about how much effort would have been expended in the past to try and get hold of fuel so that you could be warm. Mm. Um, I, I think your reputation, your social reputation was something that was vastly more important when you were living in a small band of, you know, 50 people or 100 people. Um, and I suppose the way you've described Trump's guarding of his own personal narrative and his own self-image is a sort of extreme form of being extremely protective about your social reputation. Absolutely. And, it, and, it, and in those lights, it makes sense. Yeah, you know, I it's mean, a kind of it's a kind of reputational obesity. Um, yeah. You know, the drive the drive to consume food, which we've evolved, is, yeah. is, it expresses itself in obesity. Yeah. And, and the drive to protect your reputation manifests itself in this sort of um you know, well, Trump, Trump style, you know, yeah. grandiosity. And there is, and there's a really, and that's, you know, reputation is everything. If you're, you know, he's a salesman. So in a very, you know, he would claim to be a very successful salesman, but it is all about the construction of the image. It doesn't actually matter what the reality is. He's not terribly open to information either. So he's not someone who craves evidence bases and facts and information. Mm. That really doesn't, you know, matter to him the most important thing is that he has a consistency of message and brand throughout his life in his work um and you know things that threaten that threaten him and you know it was interesting after the um after the uh, sort of storming of the capital um when he was talking afterwards he was talking about the reputational damage it could do wasn't concerned about the damage to democracy or the damage to mm -hmm. the nation. He was he was more concerned when it's drawn to his attention that this could be a, a bit of a brand disaster if he doesn't think about how he's going to correct it um, to him, not necessarily to the party, not even necessarily to his followers, for which he's quite happy to do a sort of 180 degree turn and and sort of, you know, throw them under the bus if needed. He needed to protect mm. himself and needed to protect the Trump brand. That being the case, um, how is it then, um, can you talk a little bit about someone, a lot of people, you could phrase it as sort of see through this stuff and are repelled, let's say, 
And yet to a lot of people, this appeals, mm. you know, what, 68 million votes, 70 mm. million votes, however mm. many it was, I don't know, mm. and is, you know, massively admired by a lot of people. Mm. Can we talk to that a little bit? Can, can I, yeah, can I hijack your question, Fraser? Yeah, hijack it, uh, go on. Just like, just like I did before. Um, <laughs> it, it, uh, one of the things I can't quite work out about Trump is um, what kind of intelligence he has, because he, you know, on one hand, as you said, like he seems totally unconcerned about or impervious to information, um, unconcerned about the truth, completely uninterested in subtlety um, and, you know, attempting to be right. I would say sort of strikes me as someone who's not remotely intellectually curious. Um, and yet everyone who meets him says that there's a real cunning, a sort of intelligence there. Um, Anthony Scaramucci, who was his director of comms uh, in 2017, said, um, don't make the mistake of overreading Trump. The obvious is the obvious. I know this son of a bitch very well. This is a cunning sociopath. He's nuts, but he's very cunning and he's very smart. And I, I what kind of intelligence does he have? And I wondered if he had, you know, we've talked about his relationship to his fans, which is extremely deep. You know, the, 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 it is cult like. Mm. Is he, is, would you say he's sort of emotionally intelligent on some level? <laughs> and, and if so, or is he just an automaton who is accidentally like that? <laughs> you know, is he just accidentally extremely appealing? Or do yeah. you think that he's appealing because he's calculated how to be appealing? Yeah, pro probably the latter. I mean, I, I, um, I don't know what Donald's. Donald Trump's traditional IQ would be, his intelligence would be. I don't think he's stupid by any means. I don't think he's um, dumb. I think he is somebody who probably has an average intelligence. His, um, there's no doubt about it. You're right. I don't think he's intellectually curious, apart from the things that matter to him. If you look at how he takes in information, he is, you know, somebody who takes in most of his understanding about the world through bite size high impact, cinematic, televised, <laughs> you know, Fox News style information. You know, he takes small digestible pieces for which there isn't much complexity or shades of grey. He's not interested in that. He wants the information, he wants the message and he wants it quickly. So, you know, he's, I wouldn't say he's not intelligent. I wouldn't say he's intelligent, but I'd say he's pretty skilled as a salesman. Mm. I'd say as a marketeer and a communicator, he's actually learned the trade and has uh, used that to his own apparent success um, and he's done that very well and he's certainly come along at the time where what he espouses and the way he offers it really chimes and really has traction with um, certain segments of the of the US population and probably elements of the global population you know there are probably people who equally you know think that his style of leadership and what he's offering resonates with their own worldview and I think a lot of that can be characterized by the similar insecurity he has and the insecurities that many people have and the fear they have of loss. And there's nothing that motivates people more than loss. So whilst most presidents are talking about an idealized future and what the country stands to gain and what more you could have, Donald Trump has been all about being the protector of further loss. And mm. make America great again implies that something you once had has been taken away. And we know from theories of relative deprivation that that is a very, very motivating message. It's something you once had, something you're entitled to is being threatened or has been taken away. And I am the one to either protect it from further erosion or I'm going to restore it. And that's really, really powerful. So his followers mm. who hear that message and feel that in their life that is them will see him as the protector. And, you know, throw in the 
charismatic, narcissistic, evangelical elements of the way he leads. And that's actually quite a uh, strong and, and quite powerful leadership style. Hmm. Yeah. Why, why? I mean, again, I'm probably asking you to speculate a bit here, but but it's it's something that I've noticed. I mean, I think I've seen this in a few studies that um, narcissists are, um, and I know we, we we haven't really discussed whether or not Trump is. I think it seems seems it's certainly uncontroversial among the kind of people who write about his personality that he's a sort of classic narcissist, but that they're rated more highly as leaders, even if they're less competent than non-narcissistic, or if you like leaders who have a, have a kind of reasonable appreciation of their own abilities. Um, that's again, something I find strange. Why are we, why are we predisposed to follow people? Yeah. Why do we, why are we predisposed to follow people who, um, cause I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not mystified by Trump's appeal. I get it. I mean, I totally get why Trump's appealing. There's aspects of it that I quite like. Um, but, but, uh, you know, competent leadership isn't something that I would, I, I, with the best will in the world, see him as being a good, you know, a good bet. Mm. Um, and, and again, for. yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And you're right. It's so, I think the interesting way to look at this, and traditionally we've always become a bit flummoxed about why certain people become great leaders because we've got so tangled up in them as a leader, we've forgotten to ask a question about the followers. <laughs> and it's actually mm. when you look at the psychology of followership with leadership that you understand a better dynamic about what's going on. And I think that makes sense for Trump because um, there's a really there's a really interesting model. And I, I personally don't, I wouldn't say that Trump is a, uh, a sort of, diagnosable narcissist in the sense I don't think he has a personality disorder I think he has narcissistic tendencies and traits that in certain times come to the fore but um, there's a really interesting way to look at it which is about collective narcissism which is about the narcissism that ex exists within groups and it's very s similar characteristics to the narcissism that people talk about in individuals it's sort of grandiose self of who they are um, the sense of sort of entitlement and, and most importantly, the sense of threat that's being presented by other people. Mm. So um, the, you know, looking at Trump and looking at Trump's followers, they, they work well together because there's almost a sort of emerging collective narcissism where Trump's narcissism is a sort of a need for a mirror to reinforce his sense of self, to, to tell himself that he's doing a good job, to tell himself that he is great. You know, hence the tweets go out, people respond to his tweets, and he reads the responses as validation that this is what people think of him. Even though he's been the one to send those messages out, he's always looking for that sort of self-verification that he is what he believes the marketing message has constructed. So he's always looking for that evidence of the constructed Trump. And in his followers, there's a real need for a sort of idealized um sort of leadership a sort of like we are okay we are safe we are protected um we are better than other people also he's smashing the enemies yeah absolutely you know he's sticking it to the washington elites absolutely. and the republican that, party yeah, elites draining and the, the woke and the woke sjw's and all of those absolutely people. and so that really he's driving a truck yeah really. exactly and you know in some ways you were saying how could truth be so com how could mistruth and lying be so compelling to followers well you know, some really interesting communications research done in the States that was showing that, you know, when people speak thoughts that we often feel are inappropriate to say or aren't being said, the fact that he so brazenly says these things, uh, which often defy sort of normal social conventions about what you should say and how you should say it, makes people think that there's a credibility there. He's He's brave enough to say it. He's saying what we're all thinking. Therefore, he must be right. It must be true. It must be credible. And so people 
buy into that type of communication style where he will say and do and think the things that other people might be thinking but don't feel that they can say. So the idea that somehow he's unveiling hidden thoughts and beliefs make people think, yeah, they, he is, and that is true, and he is the one. Who- yeah, although, I mean, I wouldn't characterise what he says as particularly sort of informative. I don't even mean true or false. I mean, um, it's not. It doesn't have a lot of content. Well, it depends you know, what it's the purpose lot... of the communication. Is yeah. So, so what I'm, I suppose, what I'm saying is, it, it, it's not even that you think. Well, he's saying these things that are even meaningful. You know, that that bear some kind of meaning that actually suggests the world is like a certain thing. Yeah. They are all. They they're really sort of a certain kind of pleasing noise. Yeah. Um, about things are going great and we're going to do this together and all of that kind of it just you know it's a pleasant sort of bath of affirmation um, but that is rather yeah. than rather than yeah I mean because it's in I mean the followers his followers are are you know I mean in some sense a sort of ragtag bunch of misfits I mean I think they, they they're on a spectrum of you know well, the idea is not going to be quite... judgmental on this podcast <laughs> well I'm, no, I'm, I'm not I, I'm, I mean that actually affectionately and I and I because you know on one hand you have these sorts of quite intellectual quite interesting libertarians you know who are pro-trumpists because they're fed up of the kind of political consensus and they don't like the sort of you know democrat knee-jerk we're gonna just fix this with government programs sort of thing uh right through to evangelical christians mm. who uh, trump is about the opposite of what you'd imagine they would want to see in a leader but it isn't about that is it it's not about he's, he doesn't trump ha- is not he does not have an ideology there is no, no. such thing as Trumpism. Thank goodness. You know, there isn't very kind dangerous of... <laughs> if he did. He really would. You know, thank goodness it's a fairly, you know, it's all about him and nothing more. Because if it, if there was an ideology behind it, we would be in, in real trouble. Because that would be Well, that's that's him. something I was gonna I was gonna ask actually, is and it, it, it does come down to that relationship between the person and the and the followers. And you know, a lot of certain people on the left saw in Trump this kind of spectre of of sort of fascism. I, I never really saw that in Trump. It certainly had aspects of it. The, the cult of personality was there. But actually, I was sort of thought, well, there's none of the politics. Mm. You know, there's none of the ideology. There's not even really much of American patriotism. There's not a sort of desire to do anything other than look good. Well, look um, good and, and take but, away but, the threat. And I think that's why he talks about this mm. idealized 1950s America where men do men jobs for the guys and the women are at home behind the sink and largely it was a country full of uh white people or at least we'd only look at the or count the people who were white and you know somehow that was a better and more idealized era i mean that that's probably as close as he would get to an ideology in that sense that that's so even then i think you'd be hard pressed to find statements that he's made that 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 would explicitly come close to saying well that. i don't think he has to make i, I think his followers it. may be hearing that yeah, but i, but I, I think yeah. i I, th- I think you know it's like people have tried to pin various you know they're trying to sort of say well trump's a racist but it's very hard to find statements where he's being racist it, you've got to kind of read that, it in that's the uh that's the the insidious nature of racism you don't have to well, state be a racist you know i think the the thing about trump and being you know very clever and thoughtful about his comms. I don't think he is necessarily trigger happy as much as his tweets and things make him out to be someone who maybe doesn't think about what and how he says. I think actually there's quite a lot of clever movement about who he aligns to and why. Um, And I think 
you know, he talks about this idealized time because that for him is presenting a world in which he can operate. He understands that world. He doesn't like or really understand the world of 2020 where, you know, there are more porous borders and there is more diversity and there's more immigration. And in that world, he feels very threatened because that's not the worldview he grew up in. It's not the worldview he wants to see in his future. And a lot of people sadly share that and so that resonates with them and so whilst he can draw in liberal uh sort of libertarians on the one side and you know sort of rust belt uh unemployed people on the next what they all have in common is that everyone feels like something has been lost something mm. has been lost either our ability for freedom of speech has been lost or our jobs have been lost or our ability for our conservative kids to speak up in college has been lost and he is the one who is saying enough is enough, we're going to stop this. And and that's that's the sort of enduring thread of narrative that is that can make him quite appealing, even if you're demographically, sociographically quite different on paper. Mm. Um, it might be irrelevant because he's now no longer in government. But, you know, if you were another government or even looking, at, we can look at this in, on an institutional level or from a personal level, if you're dealing with someone that you feel has Trumpist tendencies. But You've got to, I mean, we all bump around the world as individuals or institutions. We want stuff. We want things to happen. We've got our desires, right? And we want stuff from other people. So if you're a government looking, either an ally or an adversary, looking at America, you know, a year or two ago, and you want, you've got your policy aims, how, how on earth would you go about achieving those um, with someone like Trump? Mm -hmm. Um who doesn't seem to, I think what we're talking about here, one of the things that was sort of shocked everyone is that we were used to sort of um, people in power behaving in a certain way and the rules didn't seem to apply anymore. So if you're a government and the rules don't apply anymore, what do you do? Or was it really that different? Um, yeah, should we, should we talk to that? Well, I think, I mean, most presidents and, and, and leaders, one would hope, have an element of sort of humanitarianism about them where they, they care deeply about the people of their country. Um, and I think the, the the difficult thing for Trump is that he he's if you were to look at him in personality terms, some psychologists have speculated that he's incredibly low on what's called agreeableness as a personality trait. The natural sort of compassion and want and the warmth to get on with people, not to satisfy your own needs, but to to, to sort of have harmonious relationships is not something that is of concern to him. He is a salesman and he works in a transactional world. You know, even the evangelicals, there was a, a great quote from him talking about, you know, how the evangelical advisors that he's brought into the White House give him so much. But he said, but then I've given you loads. So we're equal. You know, everything's seen as a transaction of what can you do for me and what can I do for you? So unless you're operating to that model, you're not going to have much traction with him. And I think where people have had any uh, constructive relationships with him, it's where they've adopted it in a more of a boardroom style of I will do this for you and you can do this for me. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's a very difficult, uh, I mean, that will get you so far, but it won't get you much further. And, you know, as, as you know, our former ambassador in Washington, um, Kim Darrick said, you know, this is a guy who is radiating insecurity. So you're not just dealing with the sort of business CEO style Trump, you're dealing with someone who is constantly surveilling their environment for threats. And if you're seen as one of them, he just wants to remove you, not do business with you. And I think that can make it a very, very difficult political terrain to try and navigate. So, I mean, in summary, that sounds like a very difficult previous four years for for for, for other governments, let's say. Oh, I imagine horrendous. 
<laughs> well, and it, maybe yeah, unless you're Bolsonaro or not, somebody who probably understands that worldview a bit more. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, the thing is that I think even I must say that even even sort of centrist commentators um, don't. I don't think people think that Trump has made lots of terrible errors. I, I, I mean, it's not, I, I think, you know, individuals who might be looking at some aspect of his policy towards, you know, particular countries might might be able to reel off loads of terrible things that have gone wrong. But in general, I mean, he hasn't led America to war. You know, he hasn't he hasn't presided over the complete collapse of society. Um, it's, it, you know, he, he I mean, he possibly hasn't really done very much. But I think he, certainly in terms of foreign policy, it's not like people there isn't a consensus that he's totally destroyed everything um i think it's quite interesting yeah. i mean it might be that you know if he's other authoritarians um might quite might quite like it dealing with someone like that well i mean in the, in, the sense in, in, in a sense like you might feel like you know where you are yeah more so than when you're dealing with someone who's very sort of consensual and wants to get you know isn't going to tell you tell it like it is and yeah. can you really trust you know someone who someone like you know well a well-developed politician yeah. um who's good at saying what you want to hear well trump isn't going to say what you want to hear he's going to say what he wants yeah. to hear it's a bit easier to deal with maybe. well i think i think part of the issue has been the fact that trump isn't terribly interested in foreign policy you know his focus is on the domestic agenda and i think if you're looking at whether he has done much damage or whether he's done much that's been not great as a political leader it would be very different whether you're measuring that domestically in terms of you know some of the um sort of creeping negative influence over things like you know abortion rights or immigration where i think people would say he's actually done a lot of damage on the domestic agenda which you know biden has quickly gone in with some executive orders to try and correct things like global warming and environmental issues where mm. he withdrew from the paris accord you know those sorts of things i mean the the, the impact for some of those things weren't immediate you know it wasn't like he did you know declare uh, sort of a, a war in the Middle East in any way. Um, but I think some of the decisions he took, had he been left to realise some of those ambitions, could have been really disastrous globally. But I think some of the things he's done domestically, uh, insidious intergroup conflict, you know, especially in his response to the murder of George Floyd and his response to the Black Lives Matter, I think has been hugely damaging. I mean, the, the, there's no doubt about it, the, the cracks and the and the polarization was there, but he has mm. he has done nothing to try and harmonize that and everything to exacerbate it. And I think his well, for that reason, his yeah. behavior has been pretty disastrous and, and will take a long time to try and, you know, get back to where we were four years ago. It's interesting because this this is I actually sort of think in a way that some something like Trump had to happen for that reason, in a way. I mean, I see it's almost like out of the collective unconscious comes this kind of trickster archetype at the exact moment you sort of need something like that. Because I yeah, as you say, this polarization has been it's been growing for at least 10, 15 years. And I don't want to argue about who started it. I wouldn't have say it's that kind of thing, really. But that this this kind of cultural divide, I mean, we and it's not like it can't be Trump because we've had a almost identical sort of divide here, you know, since well, before and, and, and during the sort of whole Brexit referendum that um, and, and I and I think our existing, if you like, political frameworks can't accommodate this divide and and you in a way i feel like something like trump has to come along smash things up 
so that so that they can reform in a way that is more suited to what this new situation is. So I think, you know, yeah, so the, it's like our two political parties both have the same sorts of divisions going on. We don't have a means, there's no forum to to have that debate because the frameworks we have don't accommodate it properly. They're not divided up in the right way. I mean, I, I know this is all, it all sounds a bit abstract. If you, I mean, people who hate Trump are not going to see it in, in those terms, but I think there is a sense in which, you know, there was, I, I, if if he hadn't happened now, he would have happened. We would have been storing up possibly an even worse yeah. Trump in five, ten years. You could time. you could argue that it's a shot across the bow. I mean, it's been an unpleasant mm. shot across the bow, in my personal opinion. But um, but it could it could have been a lot worse. And uh, and for that reason, he does show you what the possibility. You know, democracy mm. is a very fragile thing, and I think it goes to show how easily that can be threatened. And that's a that's a cautionary tale that we should all heed. Mm. Um, and that almost sounds like a conclusion in itself. So, which is what I was going to say. We need to draw to um, a conclusion fairly shortly. Um, is there anything we want to round this off on? Is there anything we want to? Well, I was going to ask Susie now uh, what the best thing. What should what should Biden do about Trump? What does Trump want Biden to do? What should Biden? What should Biden do? What, well, what's yeah. what's the best thing to deal to do to deal? He's gonna he's gonna cast a long shadow, isn't he? Yeah, he is. I mean, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's there's sort of two two camps on this. One is which you know keep keep chasing Trump down and hold him account to every uh, unlawful and incendiary thing he's ever done. You know, impeach him. You know, and make him accountable. And and I think the Biden view is is maybe you know maybe because he is more of a sort of uh, a compassionate humanitarian, which is we just need to start bringing people together again. And actually, you know, if you if you look at the sort of wisdom of of uh, the psychologist Stephen Gross, he's like, look, Trump wants our attention. He's like a sort of in some ways a petulant child who is is always going to crave our attention. The best thing we can do is walk away from it. Is sort of you know remove our own slightly hooked obsession about Trump and fascination about him, and not give him our mental bandwidth and focus on the really important things rather than letting him just take up all the airtime and all of our thinking capacity and move on to more important issues. So you know what that, it, what, that what you said reminds me of how what a mature way to respond to a marital debate is. You know, if one side has a huge outburst because something's been building up for ages and they're really pissed off and some and it comes out in the form of some moaning about the way that someone loads the dishwasher and you have this massive blazing row. The best thing is at some point is not to keep trying to win that round. Yeah. The best thing is to work out what can we do about what's really yeah. causing this and, I think that, and to talk yeah, about absolutely. compassion. And I, th- I feel like Trump is this, Trump is the row. Trump is the blazing row yeah. that, you know, that the people who feel like they are not being listened to have now said their piece in a way. Yeah. yeah and he wants to, you know, the for Trump, it, you know, he won't, whatever Biden's decision is and however, you know, the, the US handle the legacy of Trump, Trump will not let this go you know he will be unrelenting in his uh tenacity to persuade himself and other people that he did not lose and and mm. that's an uncomfortable and inconvenient truth for him but he doesn't care about the truth so he'll carry on mm-hmm. but also he's i mean think about this as uh, from a social point of view as, you know, as a social psychologist got this all these people who voted for him we, and we talked about his audience his followers and why they feel like that presumably you know they're gonna be left feeling bereft 
um, and um, and hard done by themselves, and they, much in a similar way to, to to Trump, maybe. And and maybe the answer is still the same as you said: is we've just got to sort of let it go and let it sort of you know, rather than than argue it out and you know and and, and prosecute Trump, so that let it die down, not just for him but for them as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's two, there's sort of two sides to that as well, because on the one hand. You know, you want to lead by example, and and you, and there's an element where you've got to say, do you just let people like Trump come in, trample over the country for four years? That's your view, and then and get away with it. Because what what does that what sort of role modelling is that? You know, how and and so actually, what we need to do is show uh, our uh, levers of power and law and order working to bring people to account. Because we would we would do that for anybody else. Um, so why would he get away with it? Because that will only just feed into his sense of sort of uh, being. You know, anointed as being somehow superhuman and and special, um, but then on the other hand, does is it is it really about Trump or is it really about the people? And you know, focusing mm. more on bringing some unity and some understanding. And you know, there'll be a lot of Trump supporters who are really really fearful that he has gone because they did believe that he was some you know bouncer gatekeeper to their country that is going to keep their country safe and Biden's job is to bring those people on side and and build some faith that he can provide them with better more robust long-term protection in a more meaningful way than Trump ever could and that Biden's Mm. focus is actually on the people uh, not on the personality that sits in Mm. the Oval Office. Brilliant. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. I did. It's fascinating. Um, What I always like when we have a guest is, and with no disrespect to to, to Nick or the others, um, is to varying degrees, we just talk about stuff and have not really much idea what we're talking about. Uh, so that's why it's so nice to have a guest, Susie, um, who, who, who knows, knows what they're talking about. Yeah. What they're talking about. <laughs> um, so definitely, if nothing else, I enjoyed it. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll stop there. Please email us at podcast at aleffinsights.com if you've got any comments on this show or indeed any others. And we always like to hear from you for any suggestions for topics. Also, if you like this podcast, if you've enjoyed it, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast as it helps others find us. Um, and apart from that, just to say um thank you so much um so um i'm fraser mcgrew we've been here with nick Hare of aleph insights but our special guest this week susie ballantyne thank you so much for being with us really really enjoyed it absolutely thanks for having me very much and until next time goodbye Mm -hmm.